Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between. This week, we are joined by Dr. Brian Ott. He is head of communication at Missouri State University and a leader in the field of communication. He joins us to talk about what inspired his career as an accomplished communication scholar, how passion drives his research, and his recent book, The Twitter Presidency. Also, it turns out we all need to watch the film The Bothersome Man. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Anthony. And welcome, Dr. Brian Ott. We're so thankful that you mm-hmm. gave us a chance to interview you this week. Glad to be here. We try to have guests on uh, to break up some of the things that we say. And when we were talking about potential guest lists, I was like, okay, if I could get him, this would be awesome. And so you're very accommodating and we appreciate your time. I wanted to start by asking you like, how you decided on academia in the first place, how academia turned into communication and how you chose like rhetoric as your path as opposed to the more statistical side of our discipline. Great set of questions to get us started. So uh, like many people in the discipline, I have a background in speech and debate, primarily in individual events. So uh, I did competitive uh, speech and debate both in high school and college. That really fueled my passion and interest in the field of communication. At my undergraduate institution, George Mason, we actually had the opportunity as undergraduate students to serve as teaching assistants. So I was a teaching assistant for an oral interpretation class. As an undergraduate student, I fell in love with teaching. I knew that I had a passion there. So by the time I was finished with my undergraduate education, I knew pretty well that I wanted to be a faculty member, that I wanted to be a professor, and Mm. decided to go on and, and study communication. Rhetoric came a little bit later. I started out sort of interested predominantly in political communication. And I very quickly realized that you can't really study modern political communication without a fairly sophisticated understanding of our media landscape and environment. So that kind of led to an interest in media and cultural studies. And then those those things all just kind of came together. There's a, for me, there's a natural affinity between the study of rhetoric and media ecology. Yeah, I... I think, I don't even remember studying rhetoric in undergrad all that much. It was a graduate endeavor for me as well. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, you want us to lean into our subjectivity. You think it's valuable that we lean into our subjectivity. And now I can critically analyze something like Breaking Bad. Like I had never been mm-hmm. put in a frame where that was okay. And you yeah. start reading this stuff and you're like, oh, wow, they're they're analyzing everything and quantifying every it's just it it just opened up avenues of thought that i didn't think possible you get introduced to somebody like burke or foucault and you're like wait a minute like they're they're doing that like it's just a different frame from undergrad altogether yeah it's it's super exciting to to be able to think about well our whole our whole world is shaped by both communication and communication technologies and Everything about uh, human nature, it seems to me, is in in one way or another determined, or certainly influenced by the communication technologies that are pervasive in society at any given moment. 
and also the, the forms and styles and modes that we choose to communicate through. And so I, I, I guess what really animates it is a, a desire to understand the human condition, which I think is what motivated, you know, you brought up Burke, and I, my sense is that's probably what motivated Burke as well, is really a, a, a deep interest in understanding human behavior. Yeah, if, if we're going to go down the road of, hey, our, our worlds are socially constructed, then okay, well, how are we talking about those worlds era to era, time to time, moment to moment? Uh, I don't know if you had this experience or not, but it was so weird at the time and I, I felt so challenged by it. But I remember sitting in a rhetorical methods graduate class with Roseanne Manzik and I remember writing a paper and there's this undergrad book by Sonia Foss and I remember citing Foss in a paper and I remember Dr. Manzik just tearing me apart and saying, Anthony, you can't cite Foss. Like you need to cite the people that Foss is writing about because those are actual <laughs> real people that matter and, and you're not an undergrad anymore, basically is what she was telling me. And it was the first time that I was challenged to like think about like the people who were writing the, the things as people and remembering who wrote what. Fast forward, 2015, I meet you as the new department chair of Texas Tech. Fast forward two years later, you're the chair of my hiring committee. And it's just like, wait a minute. Like in 2013, I'm reading your stuff, like taking tests on it. And now it's like, oh, this guy's like my boss. It's just, <laughs> but the world's, the higher you go, the worlds are super small. Like, did you mm. feel that mm. as you progress? Like, is that just? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I just, just yesterday, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my first month of work here at Missouri State as the department head of communication. And I'm just learning about connections that faculty have here to other people I have in the field. I do have to back up for just a minute, though, Anthony, and I have to tell you, uh, Sonny Foss is a dear friend of, of mine. <laughs> and one of the, uh, you want to talk about a big thinker um, in the field? I don't, I don't always agree with um, every theory that Sony comes up with, but she is a big, deep thinker. Um, and mm -hmm. huge props and respect uh, for Sonny Foss. But, but, I, but you're, you, the advice you were given about not citing a textbook, good advice too. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a small world. Academia can sometimes be a little bit insular like that, which I, I guess can, can be a frustration, but, it, but it, it also builds community. I, I think about like the, the, the struggles that the discipline of communication has undergone um, in the past um, year or so. And the, the ways that I think that, that behind that, there's been mostly a, a strong sense of community as the field has struggled with really difficult issues. Mm -hmm. So what, what's your research process? How do you go about picking topics? How do you go about framing them? So I, I choose topics that I'm passionate about um, usually, and, and passion typically comes in one of two forms. So sometimes passion comes from, I just, I love something. So, you know, years ago, um, I, I wrote about a bizarre, you know, like not well-known Norwegian film called The Bothersome Man. I was just watching that film one evening with my partner. I knew I would be writing an essay about that film five minutes into the film. <laughs> and I just, I just knew. Um, I was so enthralled, like it was the, it was the best first five minutes of cinema I had ever seen. Ooh. Oh, uh, now like, I'm super well, We have to go watch this film. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, you should check it out. The Norwegian film, The Bothersome Man. Okay. And the, the first five minutes, I was hooked. 
And I was like, okay, I have to write about this film. And then um, as the film developed, I, I realized that there was actually quite a bit going on that, that I wanted to understand and make sense of. Mm. So those are, those are the topics you write about because you love them. But I also write about topics that trouble me. I write a lot about discourse in our society that in some one way or another, um, I find uh, deeply offensive or deeply troubling because I want to understand why it has the currency that it does. And mm -hmm. so the, the most recent book, uh, the, the Twitter presidency with, with Greg Dickinson, that really grew out of disgust. You know, it, it, it grew out of my concern about what I saw happening uh, in American democracy. And so th that's really what animated that. So what, what typically fuels me is passion. I'm, I'm either strongly uh, drawn to a topic because I love um, the media that I'm writing about, or I'm off put by it and so I'm passionate about it. You know, I think scholarship is, is a labor of love in many ways. It's something that, particularly if you do rhetorical criticism, it tends to be something that we do in isolation. And so if, if you're not passionate about it, it it's hard <laughs> to sustain it. And yeah. so, because so much of our work is individual and alone, you know, one of the great joys of my career has been that I've gotten to do so much of my scholarship with other people. Uh, so I've had, mm -hmm. I've had over the years, uh, more, more co-authors than many um, rhetorical scholars, and I've had great uh, co-authors. And so it, it, they've just been tremendous collaborations. I think about the work that I've done with Greg Dickinson and Eric Aoki, and we all, yeah. we all brought something to those projects. You know, uh, we, we couldn't, that was work none of us could have done by ourselves. Uh, and so it, it really had to be a collaboration. You know, Greg had spent most of his PhD studying the rhetoric of space and how it works. I had had training in uh, public memory studies in, in graduate school. And uh, Eric was really familiar with the literature on identity politics at the time. And so it was just, it was just the, the perfect sort of marriage of those interests to begin thinking about museum spaces and the ways in which we remember the past and the, the types of subjects that they call upon us to be. There, there's a piece that y'all wrote about the Cody Firearms Museum. And it's interesting because, you know, we're thinking about Burke, you know, we're, we're selecting things, deflecting things, reflecting things. And that seems to be the frame throughout the, it's like, hey, there's, there's a spotlight on technological advancement and, 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 and the Western gaze, but, but there's no thought whatsoever put to the destruction that firearms cause in our society and how, you know, we're kind of the murder capital of, everywhere mm -hmm. and 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 we're just a violent society by design almost yeah i grew up in rural pennsylvania so firearms were part of the culture but it never resonated uh, strongly with me when i when i was very young my father did take me hunting and, and so I, I had kind of those experiences so i, I was never i under i sort of understood the culture but i was never really a part of gun culture and then, you know, when, when we started studying the Buffalo Bill Center of the West and we got to the Cody Firearms Museum, I was stunned by the absences. I, I, was, I was stunned by everything the museum didn't say. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, it was shocking to me. And again, that this, this idea of being compelled to do research, mm -hmm. uh, to understand how discourses develop, both their omissions and commissions. Yes. We have a Texas Rangers Museum here that it omits quite a bit. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, totally. Well, and, and museums are such selective. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, unless we're talking about virtual museums, which ha haven't yet quite taken off the, the way uh, the public spaces have, but unless we're talking about virtual museums, we're, we're talking about really confined space. 
And so anytime you have a, a limited space, you're telling a partial story. Right. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. An intentional partial story. Yeah. A partial mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think we, we too often forget. I mean, this is one of the one of my favorite collaborations over the course of, of my career has been the opportunity to work with Carol Blair on a number of projects. I, I learned very, very early from Carol about the, the importance of understanding um, appeals to public memory in a sense of the past through the lens of the present. That the, the past is always in service of the present. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that was just a point that she repeatedly stressed when we interacted. And so thinking about like, what, what are we saying about ourselves today? And how is that appeal to a shared sense of the past um, serving particular needs, um, sociological needs, psychological needs, political needs? How is it serving particular needs today? All right, Rebecca, he he started talking about the Twitter presidency. Mm-hmm. It's I don't want to steal your I mean, you're the political sci- you're, the, you're the political scientist. Like you got to get in there. <laughs> I figured once we started talking about Twitter presidency, it would, you know, evolve or devolve. So if you wouldn't mind, will you give just a little bit of background on the book to introduce it, um, particularly around the three main purposes you see the president using over time? Sure. So let, let me just real quickly um, state like how the book came into existence. Oh, that'd be great. Yes, please. I had no intention of writing a book about um, Donald Trump or Twitter or the presidency. I I had been contacted by a critical studies and media communication and Rob Brookie, who was the editor at the time, he said, hey, I'm putting together a special issue and I, I want um, scholars to, to talk about some work in progress that they're doing. And I had been fascinated during the presidential campaign in 2016 with uh, Trump's use of Twitter as much because of the communication technology as anything Trump was doing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was fascinated by the, the, the role that Twitter was playing uh, in, the, in the political campaign, the presidential campaign in 2016. So I, I wrote an essay for him. And at the time, there were very few commentators in the United States who thought that Trump was going to be elected. Um, and, and anyone who tells you that they did is, is rewriting history, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, most people did not think he was uh, going to be elected. So. I, I, I wrote this article, um, and just before it went to print, he won the election. Hmm. So Dr. Brookie was gracious enough to let me add an addendum at the end of the piece, acknowledging that, hey, this wasn't expected, but hey, this <laughs> right. By the um, way. <laughs> and, and so then all, all of a sudden, Trump had been elected president as a surprise. This was one of the few essays in print about his use of Twitter, and it coincided with uh, the election, and it went to print right away. So the next thing I know, you know, being contacted by the Washington Post, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, to try to make sense of what happened. Look, I'm, at the same time, I'm trying to make sense of what happened. Exactly. So, so we're all <laughs> in the same boat, right? All processing and, together. And then the NCA Publications Committee reached out to me and said, would you be willing to expand this into a book? And they gave me a very tight uh, timeline to turn it around. I didn't think I could get the book, even though it was a short book, I didn't think I could get it written in the, in the timeline. So uh, I went back to uh, Craig Dickinson, who has co-authored with me for you know almost 20 years now, and said, do you have interest in this project? And he did. And we had already been working on a separate piece about Trump anyway in affect. And so we, we thought, well, why don't we just combine these things into the book? So what the book is really interested in is how did Trump mobilize affect? And specifically, the affect we talk about in the book is the really the affect of politics of white rage. We, we argue in the book that, that Trump typed into 
a, a deep-seated and widespread cultural sentiment around white grievance. And it turns out that Twitter, as a communication technology or platform, is very effective at transmitting affect. And so there was sort of a natural homology between the way Trump spoke and the themes that he invoked when he was speaking and his ability to transmit those um, widely over a platform like Twitter. And so the book really explores that intersection. As a, a media ecologist myself, one of the things that I've always been interested in is how every single communication technology is biased. And by biased, I simply mean that it, it, it's good at doing certain things and it's bad at doing other things. So every communication technology has structural limitations that influence what it can do well and what it does poorly. So I had already in the, in the piece that appeared in Critical Studies and Mediacom explored sort of the defining characteristics of, of Twitter, and, and I identified three. The message is simple. It has to be simple. The 200, when I wrote the first piece, we were still on the 140 character limitation, but of course it was later expanded to 280. But even at 280 characters, that's a very simple message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I, I recognize that there's virtually no barrier to entry with Twitter. You, you can tweet about anything, pretty much anywhere. And, and so there's a, it really privileges impulsivity. And so that was a, a second trait that I was interested in relationship to Twitter. And because it privileges impulsivity, um, frequently the communication that takes place on the medium is not particularly well thought out. Um, and a lot of it is uncivil. And so the, the discourse degrades pretty quickly. And so it was really my, my interest in all of those characteristics that began my thinking about, okay, how is Trump actually pretty, and I don't, I don't say this lightly, one doesn't hear me say things about the president that are very complimentary of it, but sort of the masterful use of that technology. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. in, in my estimation, he actually is a, I mean, I, I disagree with literally everything. It, it, it's remarkable to me that another human being exists who, whose view of the world is so different than my own <laughs> on, on every single subject. Yet he's somehow an effective communicator and a compelling communicator, particularly for those people who are devout followers. So trying to kind of sort that all out. Yeah, you make the case, or you know, y'all make the case. You know, we're thinking about the rhetorical presidency and the president as news, as a news agent, as something to as someone to be covered always, all the time. Relatively new phenomenon. But you the, the case is made, hey, as as FDR was to radio and JFK was to TV, Trump is to Twitter, which if those core ideas of simplicity, impulsivity, and incivility hold, where do you see his influence in terms of all of our discourse? Oh, absolutely. And so, th again, this is, this is really, this more than Trump was the impulse to begin studying this. I'm deeply concerned about the role of social media in politics, period. Because every technology of communication or every platform of communication has structural biases that make it good at some things and poor at other things, we probably ought not be using certain technologies to conduct our national politics. I was heavily influenced uh, in my thinking, heavily influenced in my thinking by uh, Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was you know, a best-selling book in the 1980s about the rise of television and the way television had transformed all spheres of discourse from uh, religion and education and politics. And essentially the argument Postman was making was that there's nothing inherently wrong with 
television. The television is neither good nor bad, but it's bad for politics. Mm. And it was that thinking that got me thinking about like, what, what's the role of Twitter and social media more broadly in our politics? And frankly, I, I don't think our politics should live there. Simple messaging is not in the interest of democracy mm-hmm. and in, in the interest of civil society. And it's not in the interest of racial justice, which has been a perpetual struggle for social media to get right. Facebook has an even worse record on this than Twitter. So one of the things that numerous commentators have pointed out over the past two years as as I've given interviews about this is, you're not really on social media. Of course not. I I study it. I recognize. In with Anthony. I hate it. it. I've never been on. I explain Uh, it to him a lot. (laughs) <laughs> right. I'm like, it's terrible. It's just right. awful. It, it is awful. It's it really terrible. is awful. And it, and it doesn't lead to um, healthy dialogue and debate about most social issues, which is, I want to be clear, not just me just flat out um, trashing social media or even, or even Twitter. Let me say something positive about Twitter. Hmm. It is the single most advanced uh, emergency broadcast system ever invented by humans. If you need to get a message out quickly and, and widely, and it's a simple message, Twitter is an ideal medium of communication. Ideal. So this is not about me being anti-Twitter. It's about me saying, hey, our politics shouldn't live there. Mm. Unfortunately, for the past, for the better part of the past four years, our politics has lived there. And this is what you get. Um, I mean, the society we live in right now, this is what you get when your politics lives on Twitter. Do you see any feasible way for them to move out of this sector of social media, particularly Twitter? It's, it's a great question. And I, hate, I mean, I know you don't have the magic eight ball, no, but no, if you did. I, I'm going to answer it, but I, I, I hate the answer I'm going to give. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and it's, a, it's an answer you expect probably from, um, from an educator, which is <laughs> we have to educate our way out of this uh, situation. Mm. Uh, We're probably unlikely to legislate our way out of it. I I just think if you look at history, I'm fairly well compelled that Facebook's not going to step up. I don't think Facebook's not going to solve this problem. They have an economic economic interest in not solving it. So I don't think the social media platforms themselves are likely to step in. And the government has been very um, hesitant to step in. And, And frankly, I'm hesitant about the government stepping in. If these companies were willing to take it upon themselves, I think you could set up independent panels of some kind, and there could be some self-regulation, which, by the way, is pretty much what we do in television. It's mo- mm-hmm. it's, it's basically what we do in the film industry. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're largely self-regulated um, industries. So I, I think there are solutions there. But more importantly, from my perspective, is that you know people have to come to an understanding that these platforms can, in fact, be exceedingly toxic, they're not, not only are they not good for our public discourse, the research, I think, pretty overwhelmingly shows that they're not very good for us personally. Right. There have been a number of studies that tie depression to heavy social media use. The more frequently people use social media, the, the less happy they tend to be as human beings. Yeah, there seems to be, and, and, you know, in the news media, it's like, okay, well, all the journalists have a profile. They're all putting their stuff out in these different mediums. And so they inject themselves into the story. I I think a lot of times they'll play into those three tenets that the, you know, 
the president has no problem at all living there. It's like, I lived there. I invented this. You guys are just passing through. You're not equipped. You know, like when Marco Rubio tried to t- try to get in the sewer with Trump, it's like, that's not going to work, Marco. You don't, you don't yeah. live here like I do. And, and it doesn't work for the journalists. Like, see, this is why I told y'all they're fake news. because, Like, just a word like right. fake news. Or, right. a, oh, oh, it's a hoax. Right. Or, you know, we're, we're going to call this virus, this pandemic, you know, the Chinese. Those right. little simple statements mm-hmm. yeah. turn into whole full-scale ideologies. Well, well said. And, and this goes back to my observation that I, I think Trump is actually a pretty masterful uh, communicator. Again, I, I don't like to give him credit for things, but he, for all intents and purposes, he actually did invent fake news. Because prior to Trump, fake, fake news referred to The Daily Show, right? And, right. and the Colbert Report. <laughs> right. I mean, there was a time where we all understood what fake news was. And fake news was parody, right? Fake news was satire. The onion. Uh, right? Uh, that, right yeah. that was fake news. It, it was news that wasn't real news, but it was news that satirized our news landscape. And then in between this period of, of when uh, fake news was satire and parody and, and Trump used it or created uh, the concept to really attack any kind of news that was unfavorable to him. So it's real news that's unfavorable to him. That, that's literally that simple what he means by it. Mm-hmm. In between there, because of social media, we saw the emergence of real fake news. And real fake news is propaganda. This is what Russia did in the 2016 election where they were literally circulating disinformation on social media as a way of impacting and influencing our election. So fake news is a real problem we confront as a society today in the era of social media, in the age of Twitter. And it's one that we're barely addressing at all, and we're not addressing it because Trump has masterfully co-opted the term to mean something completely different than what it actually means. And so he just labels anything that he doesn't like fake news. And remarkably, this has resonated with his base. This has resonated with his followers. You know, it's a, it is a, with Trump, it is a cult of personality. And of course, this is at the center of all mm-hmm. autocratic and authoritarian rhetoric, the cult of personality. And you know, you're starting to see more and more editorials about it in the, in the news uh, landscape now. But I, I think we should be seriously concerned about what Trump will do if he should lose the election. Will, yep. will he willingly? They're getting a whiff in Portland. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Portland is scary. I mean, he's, this week he he's threatened to potentially um, send military forces into Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, it, well, and apparently Chicago is not even military; it's DHS. So. Yes, yes, yeah. Thank you. That's a good be point. incredibly well trained in. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> I'll digress. Yeah. So you're talking about how Trump sort of co-opted the idea and the phrase of fake news, while also there's an emergence of real fake news bubbling up on Twitter. And Trump is retweeting those things and sharing actual fake news and conspiracy theories as well. How do you see his push of conspiracy theories to his audience fitting into sort of the message of simplicity inclusivity and or impulsivity definitely not inclusivity and incivility <laughs> so trump has taken sort of each one of these principles and maximized them so you, you take the, the idea of uh, simplicity and and his communication style is one that is rooted in simplicity and in fact if, if you just look at the grade level 
uh, that he communicates at. It's, it's, it's a very low level, um, several grades uh, below what most presidential communication, which is already pretty simple communication, mm. have communicated at. And this allows him through repetition to push sort of core messages just through their sheer simplicity. And, you know, Trump, because he has, as near as I can tell, literally no ethical boundaries or moral boundaries whatsoever. I mean, there's just, there are no guardrails. There are no ethical guardrails at all. So he's shameless. Uh, and so you have someone who has no sense of ethics whatsoever. So isn't concerned for instance, like most ethical people, they try to be consistent, right? Like if they say sure. one thing um, one time in their life and, and this is their philosophy, then they try to be consistent with that um, over the course of their lives. And Trump isn't bound by the norms of the other human beings. And so he, he has no qualms about being inconsistent at all. So, you know, just yesterday he tweeted about how patriotic it is to wear a mask. I mean, there is, this, this could not be a more inconsistent message with what he's been doing for the last two years if he tried, but he doesn't care. Right. Right. And so if the message is simple enough, he'll just push it through repetition and watch if he continues to push this message, his base will suddenly completely flip. And I mean flip their position on face masks. Mm-hmm. Shoot, I hope they do so I can no, go back outside. Right, I'm like, man, okay, times, hey. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right, do please. it. Put it on. You're <laughs> late, but put it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Be well, patriotic. Be masculine. Put that right, mask on. Right. No, uh, actually, so, so, uh, I, I read, um, I'm forgetting the name of the journalist now, really political opinion commentator, uh, or I read an article this morning, and she was making the point that this may be the, the only thing Trump has ever gotten right. Mm-hmm. Let's give him credit for it. Yeah. So credit where it's due, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, as you both know, you're really, really late to the party here. <laughs> but but we'll take it because we'll it's take it. It's in everyone's health interest. So so Trump has maximized each of these uh, biases of Twitter, and he uses it to completely. And this is kind of where I was going with with the simple messaging. He uses it to manufacture, for all intents and purposes, an alternative reality, one that bears no basis in external facts, any idea of truth. I mean, none of those things matter to him. They're they're completely irrelevant. You know, in the old days, we might have called this uh, image politics, but it's so far beyond that. It's a, a politics of fiction. Right? Where, where he, I mean, he, he's creating a movie script. He's, he's creating a completely fictionalized world that bears no basis in reality whatsoever. And one of the things that Trump's Twitter behavior over time has been remarkably consistent. And one of the things we do in the book is we trace it across his time as a, as a citizen and across his time as a candidate and then as president. And there's almost no variation in how he's used um, the platform. That having been said, in the last year, Trump has made a major deviation in his use of Twitter, major deviation. This is not in the book anywhere because it happened since we wrote the book. Um, It used to be that Trump's Twitter feed was overwhelmingly dominated by messages he created. His Twitter feed is now overwhelmingly dominated by messages by others. Mm -hmm. So Mm. retweeting takes up a, a tremendous amount of his Twitter feed now. So what he does is he places these sort of let's call them rhetorical signposts, right? He'll, he'll have these rhetorical road markers or signposts on Twitter that frame his fictional universe. 
And then what he does is he pulls these fragments, many of them from Fox News, but not exclusively, from uh, various places around the globe and on social media, and he rips them out of context, and he uses them to buttress this completely fictional universe that he has created. So he has created a bubble, an, an ideological bubble, where if you actually live in that bubble, his world makes sense. Now, it bears no relationship whatsoever to an external reality. But in that bubble, it makes sense. Then you can begin to understand how his followers, um, who operate in this ideological and political bubble, hang on every word he says. Mm-hmm. Which makes what we're enduring as a nation so interesting because you can't you can't bluster and obfuscate a pandemic. You mm-hmm. can't. It, it it's not something that can be alternately realized. Like it's it, it's yeah. real. It's 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 happening. It's in every community. It was easy to say, okay, that's New York. Right. That that that's them over there. Yeah. They 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 got it wrong. But now, I mean, it's everywhere. Just like. Andrew Cuomo said it was going to be everywhere because pandemics are, if it, if it made its way from overseas to here, then it's yeah. a hop, skip, and a jump yeah. from New York to California yeah. and everywhere in between. Yeah, yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. State border. Uh, <laughs> what? It, yeah. And the, the way Trump's alternate universe has bumped up against reality, again, if you're inside the universe, then you, it's hard to see it out, to have any perspective on it. His interview with Chris Wallace at Fox, at Fox News in the past few days, a really stunning um, interview because, you know, Wallace would challenge the president on something and the president would try to create his fictional universe and, and, and Wallace would come back and say, well, you know, the facts don't support that um, mm-hmm. at all. And Trump would look off, off set to, to his advisors and say, bring me the facts. Yeah, bring me the thing that supports my data. And they would walk on and hand him a sheet of paper that didn't support what he was saying at all. Right. right? But he rarely gets fact checked in real time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's able to create this completely fictional uh, universe. And it's, you know, it, it's it, it, it's conspiratorial universe. It's a fictional universe, a conspiratorial universe that has no basis um, in reality, no basis in fact, no basis in truth, no basis in ethics. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that it's coming from our president. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, meet, meet the Press, I think maybe two weeks ago, they had a segment where they were talking about the president's Twitter feed. And it was like presidential tweets and retweets between the months of January and June. And so in 2017, there were 164. In 2018, there were 243. In 2019, there was 441. But in 2020, there's been 986 of these tweets and retweets. And then this Economist YouGov poll from May 31st to June 2nd is like, okay, among adults, how do you feel about this Twitter usage? 63% of the people polled said it was too much. 20% said it was the right amount. 3% not enough. And so as, yeah, I don't know who those people, but as, (laughs) as, as realities on the ground have changed, I guess my main fear is anybody can tell a pollster anything, yeah. but in the in the confines and the and the anonymity of a voting booth, hey, mm-hmm. people are gonna pull the lever for who they pulled it for. Now, granted, he won the election by less than Cowboy Stadium if we're talking about Pennsylvania, yeah. you know, Ohio and Michigan, right? But it still happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and and I'm very anxious about this upcoming election. Uh, the, the polls provide me almost no comfort at all. 
Agreed. You, you know, they're, they're more favorable uh, for Biden than they, than they were for Hillary Clinton uh, at this stage. Um, we'll, we'll see how they develop, but I, I still don't take very much comfort in them because of some of the underlying conditions that allowed uh, for Trump's election the first time around haven't changed at all. Mm -hmm. um, there has been virtually no effort to stop the in interference of foreign governments, right? And, and Russia in particular. I mean, there's been almost no effort. We, we know that the efforts taken by um, the Russian government in the last presidential election tipped the outcome, and they're more sophisticated. And so um, without that being addressed, uh, I, I have deep concern about whether we can even conduct a fair election. And then we add our own domestic voter suppression policies to that mix. Yep, yep. Uh, many of them fueled by Russian disinformation. Absolutely, absolutely. Anthony, you mentioned that Economist YouGov poll, and I was looking at that this morning as well, and it ties oh, into yeah. the, idea, <laughs> to the idea of your discomfort. This one has by nine points ahead, and you know, we've seen polls up to 15 points, but most of them are in the like eight to nine to 10 range. But when you look at the demographic breakdown by race, 49% of white people support Trump. And so I wonder how you see that tying into the environmental factors that are the same that play into this idea of white rage. Right. So there, there's a certain segment of one of the, so the book, the central organizing theoretical concept in the book is the idea of style. And the president's style is not, we try to make this clear in, in the introduction of the book, the president's style is not his. Uh, a style um, actually refers to sort of a broad cultural sentiment. And this is where, you know, and, and this is the, the, the lingo that's sort of popular in the field at the moment. We talk about it in terms of affect. And when I try to, to, to think about the, the role of affect in our culture, what we're really talking about sort of is a, is a publicly shared emotion. That's a bit oversimplification, but it, it's a useful way for thinking about a style, is as a sort of a publicly shared emotion, because people can understand that, look, an emotion is something you experience personally. Like if you're angry, your anger is yours. It's not someone else's. And, and, and anger is an individual response. An emotion is an individual response to something. Someone else may see your emotion, they may sympathize with it, they may empathize with it, but they, but they don't actually share it. Affect is shared. Affect is public. Um, and so when we talk about public affect, we're talking about sort of a publicly shared sentiment or emotion. It doesn't have to be shared by everyone. And in the case of Trump, what we mean by white rage is clearly not shared by everyone. But there is a politics of grievance, right, where some segment, predominantly white Americans, feel aggrieved by the decentering of their white privilege. I mean, just imagine that. I mean, it's a, right? Um, so, you know, you've got a bunch of white folks who are basically unhappy because they're, they're no longer earning the unearned, or they're no longer getting the benefits of the unearned privilege uh, that they have just by being, for virtue of being white, right? And so they're angry about it. And Trump managed to tap into that sentiment. He managed to mobilize it. And his ability to recognize the power that it existed and the power of it um, to mobilize voters um, should not be underestimated. No. As evidenced by the fact that he's willing to go even further this time, right? And so, he, so, so, yeah. so, right? So we're at a very different sort of historical juncture, juncture than we were four years ago, where there seems to be some sift, shifting sentiment um, in, in the public um, around racial injustice. 
But Trump hasn't shifted along with that because he still believes that that is a powerful enough cultural sentiment um, that it's going to get him reelected. We'll see if he's right. And he has Stephen Miller in his ear too, which is yeah. probably helping to support that notion. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what you made, what you made of the Mount Rushmore speech, because like I didn't give it any oxygen in real time. Like I didn't watch it in real time. I heard what mainstream news was saying about it, and then. I listened to Ben Shapiro and he was like, it was the greatest speech he ever gave. So I went and read it and I'm reading the words and I'm like, okay, there's these words, some of which are fine. Some of which, oh yeah, patriotic words, great. But I'm like, I can't separate this from who he is, you know, like the ethos of the man. And, and I, was, I was talking to a colleague about it and I was like, it didn't, there's nothing racist there, but it still felt racist. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what to make of that. Yeah. Well, I think there probably is racism there. Uh, um, it, it may be um, sort of well-masked. But I think it's one of the most disturbing presidential speeches ever given, in, in part because of his willingness. Um, you know, in, in the previous election, he so clearly created, and now we're just, this is, let's just go full-blown Burke here, right? So his, his, his identification division model for 2016 was outsiders, foreigners, mm -hmm. right? Um, we have to stop people from Mexico and we have to stop on Muslims, right? The threat was external. The threat is now internal, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the, the really, really alarming and disquieting feature of the, of the Mount Rushmore um, speech was his willingness to label division in terms of within America. And so, you know, he, he takes large swaths of the um, uh, American public and calls them fascists. Right. Mm -hmm. Powerfully, powerfully divisive um, rhetoric. And so his, his election, again, turns on his ability to unite his base, to create a common uh, identity and identification around them. But that identification, which is for, you know, so astutely helped us understand, is always rooted in division. It's no longer division about some kind of foreign other. The enemy is within. And so in some ways, in, in, in the Trump world, it's even more insidious. It's largely, and this is the racist component of it, it's largely the dark other inside our country, as opposed to the other outside uh, our, our country. And so he may not be explicit about that in his speech, but that's what he's saying. But that's what he's saying. Mm. Yeah. How do you see the rhetoric, not just necessarily from Trump, but from media as well, around what's happening in Portland and sort of the shift away from Black Lives Matter to these rioters and these looters. How do you see that sort of playing out to the different audiences to make us either outraged by national presence unwanted from a state or very accepting of it? Yeah, from the, the president, the discourse about protesters is profoundly racist. In some ways, and I, I'll just say this sort of as a caveat, I don't want to go very far down um, this, this road, but one of, one of the things that I was pushed in interviews to, to say very early on, and I saw this with Mary Trump's book in the last um, two weeks, is people still want to play got you with this president. And they, they want people to come on air and say he's racist, which mm -hmm. to me is like the most obvious thing we can possibly say about him. It's, it's not that it's not important. I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that I think it's unimportant. I just think it, it's so profoundly obvious that what we really need to be talking about are the consequences of that racism, mm. as opposed to trying to just say, you know, it, you know, 
have you ever heard the president use this particular um, mm -hmm. racial slur? We, we don't need to know whether or not the president has used any particular racial slur to know whether he's racist. Absolutely, he's racist. Okay? There, there, there's no debate here. There's no question um, here. But putting him in that category doesn't help us confront the real practical implications and uh, policy imaginations that go along with that racism. Right. right. And the way that this is being borne by certain bodies and the way that this is um, also being used to mobilize um, very different uh, types of, of bodies. And so the, the fact that I keep, the, the, even my own description of this um, refers to it in terms of bodies suggests just how powerful um, affect is in Trump's rhetoric. Look, all discourse, in my opinion, all, all discourse is um, a, a combination of, of matter and symbolism, right? So th those two things are always at play. You can't have symbolicity without materiality. It's just, it's physically impossible. So, you know, we're communicating in a medium today that um, heavily privileges symbolicity. But there's the sound of my voice and the sound of your voices, and those are material components that carry um, this, those symbols, and the, and the materiality matters. And again, I've, I've, I've made since the beginning of our conversation today the importance that the platform matters. So what, what Trump has done is he's tapped into um, the body politic, and the key word being body here. He's tapped into a, a segment of the body politic and specific bodies, and he's speaking to those bodies on a material level, on a level that literally resonates at their sense, core sense of being. For many people in this country, they feel threatened. They don't know how to name that threat, and, and it's, a, it's, an, it's an irrational threat. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a threat re rooted in racist fears, but they, they feel threatened. And he's tapped into that threat and then pushed on the, the racist dimensions of it. Um, and so, you know, fear of, of the unknown other is a powerful motivator. Mm -hmm. and, and this is what Trump takes advantage. Mm -hmm. And it gives us a simple answer to complex problems that we experience, which we uh, love to lap up. Sure. Here's the part of, of the changing nature of our, of our world that I'm sympathetic to. Human beings, by virtue of being human beings, there, there are very few things we can say sort of broadly about human beings that are true of all human beings, you know, because it's essentialist. But, but one of the things that strikes me as sort of relatively universal about human beings is we're, we're, we're actually not very adaptive to change. Um, right, no. Ch change is difficult. Mm -hmm. But we keep inventing new modes of communication. And those modes, of, we don't just use those modes of communication. Those modes and technologies of communication, they use us. We become extensions of communication technologies and platforms. And so they, they transform humanity itself. They rewire our brains. Our capacity to think is influenced by the technologies that we use. And as we invent new technologies and we put those technologies into use, those technologies are transforming us, which creates this state where we're, we are perpetually, as human beings, confronting change. And we're just not very sophisticated at adapting to change. In some ways, the, the set of observations that I just made are very, they very, very closely uh, parallel Burke's um, notion of the uh, sin redemption cycle. Although that, that was a cycle that was sort of heavily rooted in symbolicity. 
And what I'm trying to get people to see um, with the Twitter presidency is that you can have these changes taking place in humanity and the way that we confront them um, and address them and respond to them. And a lot of the ways that we both communicate about them and respond to them occur occurs on a predominantly material level. It occurs at the level of bodies and bodies interacting with one another. It's not just purely about symbolicity. Now, Burke was acutely aware of the importance of materiality and was clear that materiality underlies symbolicity. He just didn't write about it as extensively as he wrote about symbolicity. That's interesting. I can't help but see some parallels in what you're talking about in terms of emerging communication technologies and how resistant we are to change and what's happening in education right now. And I know you're in it deeply. Do you have, more than, than most of us, but do you have advice for educators who are met with challenges in terms of technology and some of us are more adept and flexible than others? Two things I, I would suggest to educators, but I would suggest them to students too, mm. which is, I, I don't think there's ever been a moment in contemporary history uh, where the ability to be flexible and adaptable has probably mattered more. And to the extent that one can um, let go of the things they think they know and embrace the things that they either don't know or don't even know they don't know, mm. um, uh, which is a, a harder category because now we're talking about moving the, the realm of doxing into the realm of the said, right? Yeah. If you can, for a moment, ask yourself or put yourself in a position where you sort of have sort of one foot in um, the old paradigm and, and, and one foot outside of the old paradigm, which gives you the perspective to see that it is in fact a paradigm, right? Because it's almost impossible to change any kind of paradigm if you're wholly inside the paradigm. This is essentially this argument I was making about Trump followers um, 10 minutes ago, which is in their closed paradigm, it actually all makes sense, right? The minute to the rest of us who have either two feet outside of that paradigm or one foot outside of that paradigm, look at it and say, okay, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. We need educators to do the same thing right now, which recognize that, that recognize that there is a dominant paradigm of pedagogy, right? Um, one that in this country is rooted very much in the Western tradition. And one of the things that has been brought to the fore in, in our recent struggles with racial injustice in this country is a recognition that um, our whole pedagogy um, has served the interests of some people. Um, and that if, if we truly are committed to racial justice, um, then we have, to, we have to challenge the dominant paradigm. And so it's not just about, and, and this is where I see these things, uh, a confluence, where I see these things coming together. It's not just that COVID is asking us to rethink our parity, which is largely about um, modes of delivery, but the, the racial reckoning that the country is undergoing right now ought to be having us rethink our uh, paradigm of education as well. And how do we bring... Um, the margins to the center. Mm-hmm. Never before has there been sort of a more ripe moment for us as educators to look at what we do and say, how could it be different? Mm-hmm. And how could it be better? And how could it be more just? And how could it be more equitable? And how could we promote um, uh, democratic ideals and principles and institutions in ways that we never had before because we didn't recognize or weren't fully consciously aware of all of the ways that they weren't serving democratic uh, norms or, or mm-hmm. principles. That's good. 
we're in I don't even I wouldn't even say the the, the middle. We're we're at the beginning of as as institutions of higher education, we're at the beginning of a crisis because we're we're asking students to pay for an experience that we're not giving them fully and things are changing rapidly and and I was reading like an economist from NYU had had done this matrix about who's going to thrive, who's going to survive, who's going to struggle, who's going to perish and there's you know if if you don't have the endowment, if you don't have the the right tuition, if you don't have the right clout in terms of degree name, it's just a a, a march towards your 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 university not being existent anymore and yet we have all these undergraduate students that are coming out and coming into industry or going into graduate school and people finishing graduate school and trying to be on the market and now you have this flood of new academics that are very well trained and and and, and heavy in research and have a full career going but lost their institution through no fault of their own what do you say to those undergrad students and and and, and graduate students that are trying to make their way in this terrible time to be trying to get employed. Right. So a couple of things in response to that, Anthony, difficult, difficult question to answer just because the terrain is so complex. Uh, Here's the first thing I would say to undergraduates. There has never, and I do mean never, never been a better time to get a degree in communication. Because learning how to communicate effectively and communicate in ways that are adaptive and flexible um, will become, I think, the currency of the realm um, when we find ourselves one day, we're so not there yet, we're not even close, but we will eventually arrive at a, a post-pandemic, a post-COVID world. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know exactly what that world is going to look like, and I don't have a crystal ball. Um, it's going to look different. It's going to look differently than the world we live in today. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what are going to be the core skill sets? It's the, the nature of work is going to change. The nature of where we do work, I think, is going to change. The nature of what constitutes um, work is going to change. And communication has and is going to continue to be central um, to the ways that we accomplish uh, those things. So having effective communication um, skills across multiple platforms, I think, is going to be absolutely essential um, when we get to a post-COVID world. So to, to our students, I say good for you. Because I, I think you're, you're getting your degree um, in a field that is really on the rise in terms of its importance, its significance, and what it can do for you in the future. That having been said, our educational model has to change, right? And we have to actually be equipping students with a critical pedagogical understanding of the role that communication technologies play so that as young people going forward, Um, They they begin to make choices about, um, hey, what communication technology is the best communication technology for me to accomplish this aspect of my life? One of the things that I've always been interested in um, as an educator is we we don't educate students in one sort of small select sphere. We we educate them about life, and we're educating the whole student, right? And hopefully, particularly in the field of communication, when someone comes out of uh, communication with a degree, we hope that they're not only effective in the business aspects of their lives, but they're effective and ha- happier and healthier in the personal aspect of their lives. Hey, look, if, if you want to be happy and healthy in the personal aspect of your lives, don't conduct your personal relationships um, via mobile technologies, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, like, um, <laughs> yeah. like, don't have dinner with your partner 
and have your phone at the table. Right. Yeah. You're not heading toward a healthy relationship. Though, <laughs> right? You know, I know this and I catch myself. Like, it's so easy sure. to, because we want to be connected all the time. And, you know, I have, I have a young son. I have a five-year-old son. And, and, uh, and, and after we put him uh, to bed, my partner and I are often, that, that, that's our moment to be together and, and to have quality time together. And it's so easy to fall into the pattern of having your phone, checking your email, and um, be connected 100% uh, of, of the time. But that connection we have with the world through social media and through email and through all of the other devices and, and things that our phone allows, um, they create division in the very room you're sitting in, right? Um, they're, they're terribly harmful um, to our interpersonal um, relationships. This is part of the reason why I believe a communication degree is so valuable because we can help young people today not only make good decisions about um, being leaders in um, a business and being leaders um, in the next stage of, of their careers, but we can help them be happier and healthier human beings as well in their interpersonal relationships, in their small group relationships, in their organizational communication. You know, we're, we're a one-stop shop in that. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. This on me. I, I'm like, yes, nodding along. Yes, yes. Hey, I pretend yes. like I disagreed, but that's that was my undergraduate degree as well. So, yeah, if you want to be an incompetent communicator, you're going to die alone, and your family's not going to like you. They're going to shove you off to the like nobody. Like, yeah, if you don't have insurance, you're not going to have a mattress to die on. Like, it's just it's not going to work out well if you if you're a terrible communicator. Like, I prefer the way Doctor Ott phrased it. <laughs> Much more inspiring. Then you're gonna die alone. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's yeah. If you want to die alone, you want to okay. die alone. <laughs> <laughs> On that inspiring note, do you have a quote for us this week, Doctor Ott? I do. Um, I want to be clear that um, that I that I've sort of uh, cribbed this. I just came across this uh, quotation in the past week. I actually saw uh, Kamala Harris uh, post it. The quote is from John Lewis. It seemed particularly apt given some of the things we chatted about. Today, but also uh, because of his passing. So here's the quote from uh, former Representative John Lewis. Freedom is not a state. It is an act. It is not some enchanted garden perched high on a distant plateau where we can finally sit down and rest. Freedom is continuous action we all must take, and each generation must do its part to create an even more fair, more just society. That's good. That's great. That's Thank good. you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us this week. This has been This Is For The CV. Thanks for listening, Mom. This Is For The CV is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man. <laughs>